Hello, and welcome to History Soundbites, a podcast in which historians present their current research and leave us all feeling smarter and more informed for their efforts. Today's podcast features Dr. Ryan Tripp, adjunct history faculty with Southern New Hampshire University. His presentation, Ancient, Settled, and Established Constitution, Enlightened Commentaries on the Narragansett Ancient Constitution by Matthew Robinson Esquire. Sit back and enjoy. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm here today for Snooze History Soundbites podcast. I welcome you all. We'll be discussing Matthew Robinson, an 18th century attorney for Narragansett peoples, as well as an anti-slavery advocate, and I'll argue provisioning trade farmer in colonial Rhode Island. In his memoirs of the Rhode Island Bar, published in 1842, Wilkins Updike authored a peculiar biography of 18th century attorney Matthew Robinson. Updike declared ignorance of any cases of great magnitude or interest, and probably there were not any very exciting ones during his practice. Instead, he devoted much of the bio to Matthew Robinson, the well-read and learned man, and deeply and critically so in the doctrine of estates, and Cook upon Littleton was his favorite work. Matthew Robinson's library was large and well-selected in law, history, and poetry, probably the largest possessed by any individual in this state at that day. Almost 60 years later, xenophobic author Alice Morse Earle photographed West Indian lilacs near a great chimney in South Kingston, Rhode Island. The ruins of Hopewell, ill-suited of name, was the home of a Narragansett Robinson, famed for good cheer, for refinement and luxury, and for a lovely garden. Yet most contemporary historians know Matthew Robinson as an anti-slavery advocate and attorney for Narragansett peoples, a man who helped people on the margins of colonial society. The following history soundbite, an updated and abridged version of my fifth dissertation chapter from UC Davis, coalesces past and present understandings of Matthew Robinson by examining varieties of monarchy and the greater Caribbean or West Indian provisioning trade. In doing so, this presentation also advances the notion that Matthew Robinson proved a pivotal figure in American Enlightenments in the plantation complex. For some background, during the late 18th century, Newport County merchants and Kings County farmers in Rhode Island maintained a trust for the patrilineal Ninigret clan, sachems of Narragansett peoples. The trust chronicled tribal governance as a sachem ship, proprietorial monarchy of the Narragansett Reserve in Charleston, Kings County. Thomas Ninigret, the sachem, and his council of headmen constructed frame homes against stonewall lean-tos, known as stonenders, and auctioned common reserve property to pay the costs of sachem gentility and equity. Trustees ensured that ambitious British yeomen and established farmers won the bids for these auctions, expanding provisioning trams for West Indian sugarcane and mahogany plantations. This dual Ninigret clan trust reflected the union of Kings County and Newport County in the West Indian provisioning trade. Charleston farmer Christopher Chaplin and Newport carrier James Huntingman Jr. controlled Ninigret finances and administered reserve auctions to expand provisioning grounds. Kings County farms in Southern Rhode Island simultaneously produced for family and for market. Composite farmers such as Chaplin directed agricultural production to township barter economies and an exchange economy with merchants in continental and international commerce. 
Newport County merchants, on the other hand, such as Honeyman Jr., and increasing numbers of Providence shippers negotiated with these interior farmers for the exportation of Kings County beef, butter, cheese, hay, horses, candles, candle wax, shoes, iron, tobacco, barrel hoops, staves, timber, tar, tobacco, and salt cod, the protein source for chattel slaves, into colonial trading houses, as well as French, Dutch, Danish, and renovated British plantations in the Greater Caribbean. By 1757, Kings County's families established their own carrier firms 30 miles away in Newport, controlling both production and exportation. Carriers illicitly exchanged Kings County provisions primarily for French sugar and molasses, distilling said sugar and molasses into Newport and Providence rum for domestic consumption. Then, traders along the West African coast annually exchanged varied number of chattel slaves for 60,000 gallons of this surplus Rhode Island rum. Old tenor and new tenor bills of credit, pegged to sterling silver by the 1751 Currency Act, functioned as an international medium of exchange for this provisioning trade. The primary labor source for Kings County agriculture for these provisioning trade farms was chattel bondage, channeling inexpensive seasoned sleighs from the West Indies into Charleston and the Narragansett Reserve. A median Charleston provisioning trade farm included 13 pigs, 17 cows, 24 cattle, and over 100 sheep. Nindigret clan trustee Christopher Chaplin, for instance, operated a Charleston farm sprawled over 2,000 acres along the outer commons of the Southern Reserve, featuring 13 pigs, 41 cattle, and over 100 sheep. At least 14 African-American and African chattel slaves and a countless number of Narragansett servants labored in the chaplain fields. In Kings County alone, 622 slaves amounted to 13% of the total population of 4,909 souls. Plantation provisioning politics embroiled the Robinson family when British West Indian planters petitioned for parliamentary enforcement of the Navigation Acts. The petitioners sought a mercantile monopoly of sugar and molasses exports into British colonies, particularly Rhode Island. Carriers such as the Watton Brothers in Rhode Island traded primarily with French sugarcane planters, exchanging Kings County provisions for sugar and molasses at half the cost of the British standard. Parliament heeded British planners and passed the 1733 Molasses Act, a sixpence per gallon duty on sugar and molasses imported from the French Caribbean. The legislation exasperated Rhode Island carriers, briefly reviving smuggling activity. The Secretary of the Customs Commission in England and the Surveyor General of Customs for Northern British America both recommended Robert Robinson, an Anglican customs collector for Salem and Marblehead in Massachusetts, as royal customs searcher for Newport in order to curb this renewal of illicit commerce. After the Surveyor General circumvented a decline from Rhode Island Governor Watton by reformulating his recommendation into a royal appointment, Robert Robinson relocated to Newport with his second wife, Sarah, as well as with his 20-year-old son, Matthew, Robert's only offspring from his first marriage and formerly an apprentice to Boston litigators. Matthew Robinson immediately inaugurated his career as an attorney at law for Newport in southern Rhode Island. The enslavement of Narragansett peoples had spurred Kings County litigation. A South Kingston farmer, for example, sold the daughter of Narragansett servant Jane Chalkwam to a British family. In 1728, chattel slave traders kidnapped the eight-year-old Sarah Chalkwam, 
Narragansett by maternal descent, selling her to a Connecticut tailor named Edward Robinson, distant cousin of Matthew Robinson. Then, in 1732, Chalcom escaped and returned to King's County. Her mother pressed for the freedom of Sarah in the Court of Common Pleas. The controversial case captivated the attentions of Matthew Robinson. The Chalcom clan claimed that Sarah was Narragansett by maternal descent, and therefore immune from enslavement by partis law, British common law that defined black chattel slavery as a matrilineal institution. Robinson accepted the case pro bono and relied on his clients as figurative and literal ethnographic witnesses, presenting testimony on matrilineal heritage and maternal adoption in a suit to the Court of the General Sessions of the Peace. The Newport attorney appealed the case to the gubernatorial Watton brothers and won freedom for Sarah Chalkham. His colleague, Attorney General Daniel Updike, followed this legal victory with a settlement of 55 pounds in old tenor currency for the wrongful enslavement of Sarah. For Matthew Robinson, celebration quickly turned to sorrow when his stepmother perished in 1740, once more leaving his father a widower. Despite this untimely death, though, Matthew Robinson decided to marry Bathsheba Johnston in the 1741 Newport Trinity Church. His bride was the widow of George Johnston and lettered daughter of Augustus Lucas, an exiled French Protestant during the royal recovation of the Edict of Nantes. She was also the maternal great-granddaughter of John Eliot, founder of Christian Indian church states and an Algonquin conversion advocate, despite the incredulity of Roger Williams. For the 28-year-old Matthew Robinson, the case in marriage sparked studies on tribal governance and the enlightened idea of limited monarchy, which we'll return to shortly. The newlyweds relocated to South Kingston in Kings County, sired a son named William, and began construction of a farm and villa that collectively became known as Hopewell Lodge. They relied on indentured labor until 1747, when three men hired by a widow, Deborah Mitchell, kidnapped an African-American servant named Primus from Hopewell. The couple intervened in the kidnapping and eventually won a pound in putative damages from the Superior Court of Kings County, as it says in the Rhode Island Judicial Records. An enraged Mitchell, claiming the black servant as her, her runaway slave, ignored the verdict and sold Primus as in absentious chattel to James Clark. The Newport merchant, in turn, Clark, commenced a series of lawsuits against the masters of Hopewell. The Robinsons, exasperated by the Primus affair, shifted their agrarian labor source from indentured servitude to chattel slavery for transparency purposes, seeing chattel only defined as such by custom searchers. Matthew Robinson objected to any deviation from the precedent set by these Primus suits. Less than a year later, for example, Newport merchants attempted to sell Franco-African captives into Greater Caribbean chattel slavery. An indignant Robinson lodged a protest with South Kingston deputies, a protest supported by his father, who had recently questioned the delay in a French privateer investigation spearheaded by the Wanton brothers, the governor, and the deputy governor. These complaints most likely precipitated an attack on Matthew Robinson by shipper and slave trader, actually, John Bannister, who beat the visiting attorney nearly to death with a walnut stick in Newport. Meanwhile, Anglican Bishop George Barclay, Quaker slave trader Abraham Redwood, and Newport merchants had been convening the, the 1730 Newport Philosophical Society on Monday evenings to debate some useful questions in divinity, morality, philosophy, history, etc., the society contributed fi 500 pounds sterling silver for the 1747 establishment of the Redwood Library. 
Congregational parson Ezra Stiles became head librarian, enforcing bylaws authored by former Attorney General Daniel Updike, Thomas Ward, Ninigret trustee James Honeyman Jr., and of course, young attorney Matthew Robinson. The attorneys drafted a statutory list of common law that conformed to the Rhode Island Charter. They became shareholders by library petition, adopted in 1750 for propagating knowledge, virtue, and useful learning, having nothing in view but the good of mankind. Narragansett peoples became main subjects of study. Almost a decade later, Narragansett Chief Sachem Thomas Nittergret desperately petitioned the Rhode Island General Assembly to repeal legislature confirmation of reserve auctions. During a meeting with his council, the chief sachem alluded to Newport boarding school expenses for clothing, board, etc. as the cause for his debts. Baptist separates, such as James Niles, Samuel Niles, the, the Cohees clan, etc., marked the petition in support of auctions to fund sachem education. They had seceded from new divinity congregations that favored unlimited atonement for all children of God. These Narragansett separates relied on direct communication with God for doctrine, conduct, and emotional fellowship. They granted baptism only after a cogent account of spiritual rebirth and adherence to articles of faith over heathenish practices. Again, they joined supporters of the of the Sachem and the Sachem's council in uh, approving the sale of reserved soil to settle his boarding school debts. As Providence carrier rebuttals to the 1764 Sugar Act ignited what would become the Stamp Act crisis, James Tunneyman Jr. and Christopher Champlin counseled Thomas Ninigret, the Narragansett chief sachem, to fulfill his Newport education and gentility. John Hill Jr., a former trustee, noted that the Ninigret clan Stonehenger had fallen into ruins, despite repairs by the sister of the chief sachem, Esther Ninigret, and her daughter, Mary Experience. During these land auctions to pay for boarding school costs, Thomas Ninigret ordered the construction of another two-story Stonehenger in demonstration of proprietorial monarchy. He purchased several chattel slaves and servants, including an Indian boy named Samson Sidhu, for a 26-acre reserve farm. Baptist separate matrons approached Samuel Niles and reported the sale of inner commons tilled by war widows. Niles, in turn, consulted the headman who had agreed to reserve auctions for Sachem education. Niles, these disgruntled headmen, and 80 Narragansett peoples filed a June 1763 injunction against King Tom. In a rebuttal petition, Thomas Ninigret, the chief sachem, chronicled proprietorial monarchy as a custom established in timeless Narragansett country. In his telling, since the setting of the English among us, the tribes several times have exerted themselves in their defense in various wards. Sachem succession rested on a Narragansett form of patrimonial investiture. As one who had the voice of the tribe upon the decease of his father, and coronation by the course of descent in primogeniture law. Indeed, Thomas Integret claimed that Narragansett peoples enjoyed greater rights than ever they have done any time heretofore in any of the Sachem's reigns since the beginning of this narration of proprietorial monarchy in the 17th century. The Sachem gathered 134 reserve and extra reserve signatures to reaffirm friendship with the legislature. He contended that by the proprietorial monarchy doctrine of alienation, the tribe, quote, have some right to such lands as they for many years have improved. Thomas Dinergret described his opposition, though, as commercial farmers, 
those evil and designing people with a view of making private advantage to themselves have industriously been for a long course of years endeavoring to make and foment divisions amongst the said tribe. In frustration, the Samuel Niles faction sought legal counsel. In 1759, the Chalkham clan had recommended Matthew Robinson to the Wapi clan. On behalf of the Wapi clan, Robinson had argued for, for an immemorial sachemship, quoting him, immemorial, endorsing hedgerow enclosure for sovereignty, sustenance, and provision markets. The subsequent legal victory prompted the Wapi clan to recommend Matthew Robinson to Samuel Niles. Robinson accepted the case soon after he settled the estate of his father, who had died in 1761. Matthew Robinson studied the ancient or immemorial sachemship as an allegiant usufructory or limited monarchy, entwining agrarian research with antiquarian pursuits. He constructed the 800-acre Hopewell Lodge in 1747 and inventoried 11 African-American chattel slaves within 27 years. Robinson, an Anglican member of the hard money faction in the legislature, or support supported the hard money faction, recorded private debates with paper money advocates such as Joseph Stanton Jr., son of a deceased Dinagret clan trustee. Matthew Robinson's Hopewell Lodge emulated the Georgian built environment of, of the, for example, 5,760-acre Stanton farm in Kings County Estates, featuring symmetrical outbuildings that radiated from central dwellings. So there's been arguments, uh, you know, that Matthew Robinson was a bit of a wannabe. Peacocks and deer from London traipsed between structures as evidence of gentility. Anglican, Anabaptist, and Quaker farmers in Kings County, these provisioning trade farmers, purchased thoroughbred racehorses known as Narragansett Pacers from Samuel Ward and other equestrian breeders. Gentlemen raced Pacers along Kings County beaches for honor and ornamental trophies, such as sterling silver, ornate tankards, European furniture, and South American ceramics. Honor is definitely a contested term there. They commissioned European artists for family portraits that included deer, foxes, hawks, and other spoils from recreational hunts. Between 1759 and 1768, Matthew Robinson purchased the 7th and 8th editions of the Gardner's Dictionary by Chelsea Physic Gardener Philip Miller, revised for Linnaean binomial nomenclature with genus specifications. In the Hopewell Garden, rows of John Bartram seed boxes and West Indian lilacs created a lush interior, overshadowed by tall Rhode Island sycamores. Across Kings County, provisioning trade gentlemen strode with family and friends across ecological representations of global commerce. Matthew Robinson invited families into his garden for Latin orations on British and French literature. He chronicled parochial epics that cast sachems as classical titans. Contemporaries described him as a cognoscente in the world of letters. Matthew Robinson sought material culture of a timeless Narragansett country. Before these weekly garden tours, he led visitors to Shikasin Brook near his Hopewell Lodge. According to anti-Bellum author Wilkins Updike, Robinson, quote, pointed out to us below the curve in the limpid stream near his house, into which he would throw his line, enjoying the delightful retrospection that the venerable Canonicus, the unfortunate Minitonomi, and the brave Canochet, the last of the Narragansetts, had, sitting on the same stone, drawn out the golden trout before him. This nostalgia scanned his study with an array of Kings County antiquities. Matthew Robinson subsequently constructed a library for artifacts, treatise on political ecology, 
a rare first edition of the Apologia of King Charles, and a five-inch porcelain inkstand purchased in Delft from Dutch merchants. Matthew Robinson chronicled the Narragansett Sachem Sip as limited monarchy, not proprietorial monarchy, but limited monarchy, vested in sovereign enclosures, reinventing customs first devised by the 1709 Ninigert clan trust. Robinson and trustees shared a common frame of reference, a Shasham ship that augmented provisioning grounds for greater Caribbean plantations. In Hopewell Library, Robinson retained a, the 1581 Discourse on the Commonweal of this realm of England. In the discourse, Sir Thomas Smith had presented a three-act conversation on monetary inflation between a knight, merchant, husbandman, craftsman, and doctor of divinity. Smith conflated arable crop enclosures with subsistence agriculture and pasture enclosures with commercial agriculture. He also assumed that 1549 inflation rebellions resulted from an eclipse of arable enclosures by pasture enclosures and reduced human motivations to profit covetousness. Smith envisioned domestic, community, national, and transnational economies as interdependent mechanisms of a worldwide clock measuring linear time. Crop consumption, he reasoned, was a foundation of the global economy. Conversely, world markets consumed wool, horses, and surplus provisions in exchange for products absent in a microeconomy. Disproportionate arable and pasture enclosures generated inflationary uprisings, a Smith argument for the conversion of this 1571 Irish Ards Peninsula into Romanesque provincial villages, joined to townships by equal numbers of arable and pasture enclosures. Mercantile officials should regulate enclosures, Smith argued, balancing subsistence with commercial agriculture. In a 1764 petition to the Superintendent of Indian Affairs in North America, Matthew Robinson had explained that ancient sachems promoted hedgerow enclosure for sovereignty, sustenance, and provision markets. Baptist separate farmers provided Matthew Robinson with case law to enshrine sachemship pass with agrarian religion. In Hopewell Library, Robinson also reserved John Locke's posthumous of the conduct of the understanding, intended as a supplement to the 1689, more cited, essay concerning human understanding. The essay argued that self-reflection and sensory perception of substance and objects generated ideas in the white paper, the tabula rasa of incipient consciousness. Of the conduct of the other, of the understanding, on the other hand, distinguished between fallacies and reasoning, intuitive connections among ideas, and theology, the science of the true end of understanding, which is the veneration of the creator and the happiness of mankind. Now, Bishop George Barclay, Anklin founder of the Newport Philosophical Society and Redwood Library shareholder, had pushed Lockean sensationalism, or studies and sensory perception, to subjective heights. Barclay posited interpretation as a barrier between substance and sensory perception, between words and ideas. He maintained material cultures of knowledge and connotation, limited and ordered by God. In 1731, Berkeley professed that Narragansett peoples do not at present amount to 1,000, including every age and sex, and these are nearly all servants or laborers to the English. However, according to Locke, there are instances of very mean, impoverished people who have raised their minds to a great sense and understanding of religion, and he gives the example of the Huguenot peasantry. In the Matthew Robinson narration of the sachemship, ancient confirmation rites for hedgerow enclosure 
legitimated Narragansett men as king. Robinson studied the tributary practices of his clients in the context of an immutable Narragansett, quote, ancient, settled, and established constitution. This reference derived from another Hopewell Library text, jurist Sir Edwin Cook's the first part of the Institutes of the Laws of England, also known as a 1628 Cook on Littleton. Cook, mentor to an adolescent Roger Williams in the 17th century, had collapsed the history of land tenure into an immemorial commentary on the 15th century jurisprudence of Thomas de Littleton. In a rational, critical manner, Cook rooted freedom simplex arrangements, community agreement for voluntary enclosure, in Norman monarchical rituals such as aristocratic homage and night service. Matthew Robinson likewise chronicled gifts of wampum and crops to ancient sachems as confirmation of hedgerow enclosure. In a later trial, he proposed that different forms of tribute united horticulture and agriculture farmers on the reserve. Matthew Robinson argued that hedgerow enclosure increased industry and mitigated the impoverishment of horticulture. In Hopewell Library, British publications on ecological commerce, such as Reverend John Lawrence's 1726 A New System of Agriculture, advocated for the enclosure of crop hillocks, meadows, and waterways. Lawrence declared British commons obstacles to agrarian progress, arguing that agricultural production increased property values. Farmers could employ transients, attracted, obviously, to the idleness of common property, for industrious pursuits in fencing, ditching, tilling, animal husbandry, and even fish hatcheries. Robinson applied the system to his reinvention of the Narragansett, quote, ancient settled and established constitution, and the golden sachemship passed, indolent horticulture plans attempted to free ride the lucrative fruits of agriculture. The Narragansett sachem case offered the 51-year-old Matthew Robinson a valuable opportunity to present his narration of limited monarchy. In October 1764, Robinson dryly observed that somehow or other it is so happens that the delays and continuances at our General Assembly give Tom and his white allies and friends much time to serve themselves and get good estates. A month later, the South Kingston Ideal Law dispatched Baptist separates Tobias Shattuck and Thomas Cohees to New York with a letter for Sir, w- for Sir William Johnson, Superintendent of Indian Affairs in North America. Matthew Robinson accused reserve surveyors of a misconstruction of the words of the said agreement as I apprehend they returned home without doing anything. The delay allowed Thomas Ninegret, with scorn and contempt, sufficient time to auction off thousands of reserve acres. Robinson depicted the reserve as an Indian town of free men, not quitrit tenants, for they, all sachem and tribe general, lived together in towns. Despite advising Samuel Niles and Ephraim Cohees to wait for endorsement, Robinson queried whether the superintendent can and will assist the tribe in putting a stop to the king's hasty method he takes in destroying their estate. Robinson explained that petitioners from both factions maintain strictest friendship and have always been true friends to His Majesty King George and all his family. Both sides included appellate appellate jurists and Algonquin friendships. The Matthew Robinson brief pivoted on competing narrations of the sachemship, proprietorial monarchy versus limited monarchy, the latter endorsing hedgerow enclosure for sovereignty, sustenance, and provision markets. Matthew Robinson argued that sachems mediated between horticulture and agriculture farmers on common property for, quoting him, time immemorial. Then, he argued, in 1709, Ninegret II and fraud artful proprietors forced Narragansett people onto reserve. 
The brief totaled Ninigret clan debts prior to the Thomas Ninigret coronation at about 60,000 pounds in old tenor currency. Thomas Ninigret's council desired that the sachem ought to have liberty to sell his estate as he pleases without such restrictions, to pay off that debt and build a new house and pay for his fine pleasure boat, the George, that will stand him in four or five thousand pounds old tenor. The chief sachem and his supporters had apparently leased a schooner to pay for an anchor, but the lessee claimed that Thomas Ninigret already owed him wages and supply subsidies. James Honeyman Jr. and Christopher Champlin, both Ninigret clan trustees in contrast, defined the Ninigret sachems as proprietorial kings. The Niles faction immediately produced a sachem agreement for enclosure, and that said sachem may be compelled to finish and conclude it according to the true intent and meaning thereof. The contract sustained their arguments for limited monarchy. So this Matthew Robinson brief challenged and exploited contradictions in the Ninigret sachemship. Both sides claimed to represent a large part of the Indians and the principal Indians of the tribe, in quotes. But the 134 signatories on the Thomas Ninigret petition included not only many of the tribe, but also other Indians that came from abroad and are not of the tribe. Ninigret proprietorial monarchy had formally excluded impermanent sailors, servants, slaves, and woodland Algonquin kin. Robinson included a Ninigret II comment from several decades before this on the scarcity of, re- of reserved soil as a possible reason for Ninigret sovereignty. Then he added that his clients, quote, have been in danger, some of them of being killed by some of the other part of the tribe. The outbreak of violence heightened the need for a favorable response to messengers Tobias Shaddock and Thomas Cohes. Sir William Johnson, the superintendent, agreed to closing arguments for a final decision. On March 20th, 1765, Thomas Ninigret and Matthew Robinson submitted their claims to the Superintendent of Indian Affairs in North America. Thomas Ninigret and his trustees challenged the assumption that the fake case even fell under the jurisdiction of Indian Affairs in North America, chronicling once again Ninigret proprietorial monarchy. The chief sachem considered his situation to be very different from those savages and uncivilized people over whom his majesty has authorized you to superintend. For a half century, the Ninigret kings defined themselves as proprietors and gentlemen. His opposition argued for sovereignty by hedgerow enclosure, but Thomas Ninigret knew of none they are possessed of, but what the sachem allowed them to improve, for which they always pay him a tribute to his cor- at his coronation. Thomas Ninigret offered to demarcate boundaries between his farm and reserve commons, hoping to end factionalism. Thomas Ninigret even warned the superintendent of Indian affairs of a scheme to consolidate reserve commons into expansive farms. The sachem explained that these farmers drew the curtain and revealed a nefarious plan for him to quit claim particular deeds to every individual and in such proportion as they had pleased to a lot, whereby a few designing crafty ones would get four-fifths, and what would secure those from soon dissipating as they are but Indians if they have a power to convey it. Rhode Island magistrates apparently rejected this suggestion. The chief sachem and his supporters would cheerfully submit, though, to a superintendent decision after a legislature resurvey of the reserve. Matthew Robinson, on behalf of the Samuel Niles faction, repeated their allegations and included background on two creditors for Thomas Nittergret. According to Robinson, Rhode Island deputies Gideon Hoxie and Robert Potter loaned the chief sachem more than 14,000 pounds in Crown Point bills. In 
Kings County People of Influence had contributed over 70,000 pounds in paper money to Nindigret Stonender construction. The chief sachem sold a fine farm or two to Hoxie and Potter for debt repayment. Robinson further claimed that Thomas Nindigret sold an Anglican glebe to trustee Christopher Champlin and quit claimed sawmills and meadows near the Great Salt Pond on the reserve to an unnamed proprietor. His clients appealed to the superintendent because of Rhode Island magistrate complicity in Thomas Nindigret reserve auctions. Matthew Robinson attached the lackluster results of another petition to the Rhode Island General Assembly and a political canvas of Narragansett factionalism. His clients had authored yet another injunction against Thomas Nindigret, increasing their dissident constituency from 85 to 157 Narragansett peoples. Matthew Robinson described his clients as the most sensible part of the tribe, alluding to Baptist separate enrollment in Moore's Charity School as the cause for the increase. Magistrates declined enjoinment on grounds that the petitioners failed to represent all Narragansett peoples, many of whom Tom has so blinded, Matthew Robinson retorted, as to get to his party. Matthew Robinson concluded his arguments with an invitation, though, from Baptist separate elders. They consented to the construction of an Anglican reserve schoolhouse, which they hear is done for many other tribes less civilized than this. The year before, Narragansett headmen consented to a tribal census of 600 people in a bid for two schoolhouses. On behalf of the Anglican Society, Mohawk schoolmaster Cornelius Bennett had instructed 200 Narragansett children as an instructor for several months. Thomas Nindigret had thanked him for the lessons. In an act of appeasement, Baptist separate elder elders agreed to support the sachem in his efforts to recruit another schoolmaster and Matthew Graves, an Anglican missionary recommended by Bennett. Plus, in an effort to end Narragansett factionalism, Samuel Niles recalled the Shattuck brothers from Norris Charity School to preside over a long-awaited review of the sachemship. James Niles, Tobias Shattuck, and John Shattuck Jr., including other Baptist separates, charged Thomas Nindigret with deviance from Narragansett customs. They accused him of, quote, marrying a mulatto woman without ye approbation of ye tribe and ignoring his counsel during land sales. In their narration of the sachemship, ancient sachems did not enjoy a larger right in the lands appropriated to the use and benefit of the Indians than any common man of the tribe. They collected 157 signatures, including 14 signatories on the 1763 petition in favor of the chief sachem. In a 1767 continuing review of the sachemship for Sir William Johnson, the superintendent, Baptist separate Tobias Shattuck argued that British coronations ratified the sachemship as limited monarchy. Samuel Niles and John Shattuck Jr., in contrast, well, actually to support this, had resolved on a final appeal to the 1767 legislature. Niles provided an outline to Joseph Fish, a missionary on the reserve, and attached the 1709 quitclaim of Narragansett vacant lands. They also claimed that Niles and markers of, of the 79 petition to fund Sachem education had signed through inadvertence. We are persuaded to save the great charge of his guardians. In a play, plea to Sir William Johnson, Matthew Robinson suggested that John Johnson, son of the superintendent, deliver the petitions to King George III. Robinson added that, as to myself, I sincerely have no views of interest upon them, and am truly affected with the vile rapacious treatment they have met with. The superintendent deferred all petitions, pending a Woodland Algonquin summit. The Shattuck brothers sailed the Atlantic to defend a Narragansett form of the cookie and agent settled an established constitution. 
On April 23rd, 1768, Sir William Johnson met with Woodland Algonquin emissaries to settle land disputes, declaring the lawsuits outside his jurisdiction. He preferred the Shattuck brothers join his son on an overseas voyage to London, rather than raise subsidies for an audience before the Earl of Dartmouth. Matthew Robinson, despite enlightened contributions to the petition, declined an invitation to join his clients on the transatlantic journey. This rejection, along with rumors of Robinson collusion with Thomas Nittergret, fueled speculation by Anglican missionary Matthew Graves of Robinson's equivocations, falsehoods, and lies. Nonetheless, in the subsequent humble petition of John Shattuck, an Indian of the Narragansett Nation in North America, the Shattuck brothers chronicled the sachemship as a political artifice founded on an ancient, settled, and established constitution. They traced friendships with Rhode Island magistrates to the days of Canonicus and Minotinomi, when the Narragansett had been a numerous body of people. The ancient sachemship functioned as limited monarchy, endorsing, endorsing hedgerow enclosure for sovereignty, sustenance, and provision markets. Headman even administered an oath for gift and vestiture. You being chose sachem by these men and women now standing here, you shall no longer be sachem than you obey the council and the tribe. They revealed that your petitioners with their sachem and the whole council consisting of nine old men had from time to time sold various parcels of land for sachem education, but protested further auctions. Unfortunately, the, the deaths of the Shattuck brothers by disease compounded travails from Samuel Niles. Anglican missionary Matthew Grays had informed Edward Deke, the schoolmaster on the reserve, that both Thomas Robinson and John Johnson had decided against counsel. Samuel Niles once more turned to Matthew Robinson, who waived their apologies and accepted the case pro bono. The South Kingston attorney and a secondary law partner launched penultimate service for the Niles faction in James Niles versus Peleg Cross, a Dimes Niles lawsuit against Peleg Cross for a previous mortgage default by Samuel Cross. In a February 1768 countersuit in the Kings County Court of Common Pleas in Rhode Island Superior Court, available in the Rhode Island Judicial Records, the Sachem clan versus James Niles, Nittigert clan counsel Jonathan Hazard placed the Sachemship on trial. The legal struggle began when Plague Cross, on behalf of Samuel Cross, had returned a 180-acre farm claimed by James Niles to Hedman William Sachem, father-in-law to Esther Ninigret, for unfixed prices. During the ensuing courtroom battle, the hazard strategy for, for the Ninigret clan hinged on witnesses Mary John, widow to horticulture yeomans John Sam, as well as Hedman James Daniel and Christopher and Henry Harry. Mary John testified that my husband always paid a quitrent to the sachem or king for the land by his labor. Clans paid quitrent to Thomas Nittergret as proprietorial king, a form of rent that provided legal immunity in the event of delinquency. James Daniel and Christopher Harry testified that Narragansett peoples frequently provided the sachem and his council with labor services in lieu of quitrent. They further described the sachem's council as a conciliatory body to a proprietorial king, anticipating a Niles factional rebuttal. Matthew Robinson and James Niles, in contrast, rooted tributary reciprocity in cookie and homage and limited monarchy, advocating enclosure for sovereignty, sustenance, and provision markets. Matthew Robinson, relying on the testimony of 85-year-old Tobias Cohes, who actually spoke through an interpreter, a Woodland Algonquin interpreter, first established that a sister of Ninigret II, Queen Tokama offered the lands to the Niles clan as a gift to Samuel Niles. The Harry brothers testified that Hedman deferred consent for primogeniture inheritance because Narragansett men were quitrant tenants, not free men. 
But Tobias Cohes, interrogated by Matthew Robinson, vehemently disagreed. He is 85 years old and never heard that the Indians paid the sachem any rent for land when they improved. Ephraim Cohes, again counseled by Robinson, demurred. The Indians used to work for him when he wanted work done, he being our king, but not for rent. Thomas Paul testified that the squaws and children as well as the men met and paid money as an acknowledgement, not quitrent. Joseph Cohes and Thomas Lohes recalled the previous sachem explaining a law that the sachem could not do anything of himself, nor could the tribe do anything of themselves, but the sachem and tribe must join in transacting their business, for that a deed given by the sachem must be approved of by the council and tribe, or it would be good for nothing. The elder Shattuck testified that if an ancient sachem sold commons, it was always objected to by the tribe, and there was a custom among the Indians to pay something to the sachem as an acknowledgement to the sachem, but not for rent. Mary John quickly reversed her contentions in response to this testimony, contributing to a favorable decision for Matthew Robinson and his clients. She denied her that her husband paid any money to the sachem for the rent of the land. In closing arguments, Robinson cast James Niles as an exemplary farmer, explaining that he used, occupied, and enjoyed the possession of the within-named premises, 20 years and upwards, freely and quietly claiming the same as his own proper estate. Chief Justice James Helms subsequently outlawed the auction of reserve enclosures under improvement. Governor Stephen Hopkins then appointed the triumphant Matthew Robinson to another resurvey committee on the Massachusetts and Rhode Island boundary. But instead, the South Kingston ideologue represented the reform chief sachem, Thomas Nittergret, against carpenter William Welch and a servant, reaffirming his own, Matthew Robinson's, loyalty to limited to the idea of limited monarchy as a reformation mechanism. News of both courtroom decisions reached a black shuttle slave named Esther, who recognized Matthew Robinson as the defendant from the Primus suits. She sought a manumission bond to fulfill the will of Quaker mistress Susanna Hazard freedom for Esther and her daughters. Robinson, policing consistency and chattel litigation over statutory law, provided the bond. In adherence with the Sachem decision, a Rhode Island legislature committee prohibited any auction of reserve enclosures under improvement. The Sachem's council, intent on discharging integrate clan debts, did petition for another auction of reserve commons and parcels of Fort Neck, despite the decision. But Narragansett Hedman, along with the Niles faction and Matthew Robinson, protested any auction of the neck that provided access to the Great Salt Pond. Here, Matthew Robinson diverged from Narragansett people soon after the protest and then subsequent death of Thomas Ninnegret. Quaker anti-slavery sentiments had found a welcome home in Rhode Island attorney-at-law offices. Henry Marchant, for example, on behalf of Connecticut merchant John Randall, sued South Kingston attorney Matthew Robinson, our very own Matthew Robinson, for providing a manumission bod to that chattel slave named Esther. The Superior Court overturned a decision that her mistress only preferenced manumission. Instead of heeding Marchant protests, the Chief Justice Stephen Hopkins joined Moses Brown in co-authoring an anti-slavery writer to a boycott bill. For more on these anti-slavery efforts, as well as the culmination of Narragansett tribal governance of the Greater Caribbean Provisioning Trade, please read my updated dissertation. Matthew Robinson appears again in Rhode Island records during the Revolutionary War. In summer 1779, the South Hingston Skyon offered French captains his cherished clock and other tokens of hospitality. One year later, he asked Christopher Champlin, his former legal opponent and integrate clan trustee, to retrieve the items from Newport because he had been driven to suspect that the French may, before I see you again, take a start and go off. 
Robinson purchased also during this period a 1772 Boston edition of Sir John Hall's The Englishman's Right and an inexpensive 1774 Newport edition of Lord Chancellor John Somerset's The Judgment of Whole Kingdoms and Nations. Both accounts that propounded limited monarchy and rooted juries in Anglo-Saxon rather than Norman institutions. In winter correspondence with Moses Brown, Matthew Robinson seemed unaware that these anxieties ran contrary to the Francophile pursuits of Christopher Chaplin, whose daughter impressed French naval attaches in Newport with Francophone fluency. In January 1781, magistrates incarcerated the bewildered Robinson for loyalty to limited monarchy during the war. At the behest of the attorney general and governor, the legislature placed Robinson under house arrest in Hopewell Lodge until his March exoneration. The son of a former colleague, uh, Daniel Updike, inquired into the health of the prisoner and his new wife, Anne Jackson, who had married Robinson three years before after the untimely 1775 death of his first, first wife from pleurisy. Robinson warned Updike of the poison of Rhode Island law, then reassured his apprentice that he would bear and forbear, accepting the vicissitudes of existence espoused by the Grecian Stoic Arian in discourses of Epictetus. The death of Rathie Robinson's stepson ironically forced the aged bibliophile into another 15 years of debt litigation. In summer of 1792, Matthew Robinson invited U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Jay to tour Hopewell Library. Three years later, in November 1795, the 82-year-old South Kingston hermit perished in Hopewell Lodge. Massachusetts and New Jersey textile investors Sarah's French and William Patterson, his executors, surveyed Hopewell and other Morbin farms for highways. They auctioned the lodge and every book in the library, all in the name of industrial improvement. But the memory of provisioning trade bibliophile Matthew Robinson persisted. I hope this podcast has elucidated wellsprings of history that ushered in present-day understandings of Matthew Robinson and coalesced them with uh, understandings of Matthew Robinson in years in years yore. For History Soundbites, I'm Ryan Tripp, wishing all you Robinsonians good tidings in the new year.